0: Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Linda
1: Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network,
0: broadcasting
1: live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
0: Hey and welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host Grace Bonnie, and today we're coming to you live from Roberto's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to After the Jump every Wednesday at 1 p.m. on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, or download the podcast on iTunes anytime. This summer, I had the pleasure of speaking at the finest creative conference I have ever attended, Weapons of Mass Creation. Held in Cleveland, Ohio, WMC Fest celebrates and investigates all aspects of the creative community, from discussions about embracing fears and building a business to learning better ways to include and give greater visibility to members of the community that aren't included as openly. The conference was essentially the gift that keeps on giving for me. It's opened my eyes to a number of issues facing my colleagues that I hadn't yet considered and made me look at my own work to both appreciate what it's done for my community, but also look a little bit closer to see how it could improve and do more. I made some great new friends from that trip, one of whom is a Chicago-based artist, designer, and printmaker whose work my wife and I loved so much we bought it on the spot and shipped it back home to our dining room in Brooklyn. That designer is Veronica Corzo Ducart, and I am thrilled to have her on the phone with me live all the way from Chicago. Thanks so much for joining me today, Veronica. Thanks so much for having me, Grace. I'm so, I, really? I wish you were, I wish you were here in person, but. Or, I know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> we're excited to have you on the phone. Um, so I want to start all the way back in the beginning for people who um, weren't, aren't familiar with you yet. Let's talk a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up and did you come from a family that was artistic at all?
1: Yeah, um, I grew up in this town called West New York, and despite its name, it's actually in New Jersey. It's about four miles outside of Manhattan. And I can't say that I actually grew up in an artistic family. Uh, My grandfather was an accountant. Uh, My mom was pretty much a stay-at-home mom. And, uh, you know, my dad worked in marketing and, you know, pharmaceutical. And so, yeah, I I didn't really grow up in an artistic family, although that was always, you know, um, supported for me.
0: What did you think you were going to do when you were little?
1: Oh, wow, I went through a bunch of things. I did <laughs> when I was really when I was really little, I thought I was going to be an artist and I loved um watching like uh Bob Barker and stuff like that. Um but then I I I thought I was going to go into psychology actually. Uh which I did my first year in college, I sort of I pursued psychology and uh Kind of quickly dropped that in my second year.
0: So what what pulled you into sort of the fine arts world? You know,
1: honestly, so I decided to switch my major in college um, and I went into design. and I kind of cobbled together my, my own design education because you know the school I went to wasn't really great for for that. So and I just started working immediately as an intern in, in um, design firms and working as a designer. But then I didn't really fall into fine arts, um, into grad school, really. Actually, I had been working, you know, I had been working in New York in the industry in music, magazines, and fashion, and had always felt like I had missed out on, you know, art school and really wanted to pursue that. So I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, and that's why, you know, my partner and I moved.
0: That's, I, I'm very impressed that you have not one, but two MFAs. One in, one. <laughs> one, one, one in writing and one in visual communications, both from the School of Art Institute, um, or the School of Art at the Institute of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Um, what drew you to sort of go into further education? I find that so few people in sort of the fine art community actually pursue that. What made you sort of want to spend more time sort of delving deeper into the educational part of that? Yeah, I think, you know, I had you know, I've
1: worked in the entertainment industry, essentially, for, like, six years, which, I mean, I loved. I got to work, you know, on record labels and stuff like that. But I was interested in going a little bit deeper, um, and I was really looking for a school that had, like, the conceptual theory background. That's why I decided on SAIC. Um, and I don't know. You know, I, never, I had never really delved, delved into personal work, which is funny because it's kind of most of what I do now (laughs) Um, but really um, I feel like I kind of like discovered myself as an artist when I went to graduate school and I just you know I just wanted to dig a little bit deeper and have you know have the space to sort of explore those ideas
0: Yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about your personal work. That's what I know most. You're celebrating the fifth anniversary of your studio, Winter Bureau. Can you tell everyone listening a little bit about how that got started and what your sort of original goals were with the studio?
1: Yeah, um, I think my goal going into grad school was, you know, I would eventually open up my own studio. And as soon as I graduated, um, I started teaching, and uh, I met Nathan Nakanishi from Sanzar, and you know, it just sort of worked out where they were looking to open up their studio to, you know, a studio mate. They wanted to share the space. And she knew I screen printed and approached me about, you know, sharing the space with them. And I was just kind of like, well, I mean, I had, I had admired Nadine's work for a while now. And so I was just like, yeah, I can't not take this opportunity. This, this is now or never. Um, so Winter Bureau was sort of born then. That's when I started working under that name. How did you choose that name? Um, So, despite the temperatures right now, I do (laughs) love winter. Um, But really it's the idea that, like, I love this idea of, like, this imaginary cabin where you keep all the things that, like, um, influence your life and all the things that are important to you, preserve those things. And so this idea of, like, a winter bureau that both, like, implicates work and this, like, you know, keeping things in a bureau for, like, safekeeping and collection. I just really like that idea.
0: Mm-hmm. I will, it leads me perfectly into my, my next question about the speech that you gave at this year's Weapons of Mass Creation, um, where you talked so much about the way that family and history and the collection of objects plays into design. For people who haven't gotten a chance to see that yet, and for anyone listening, I'm going to provide a link to Veronica's talk from Weapons of Mass Creation on the Heritage page and on my site, too, because it's a must, must watch. Um, Veronica, can you tell everyone listening like, what that talk was about and what sort of the, the whole inspiration for that was?
1: Yeah, um, I was talking about, you know, how history influences my work as both a designer and artist, Um, and I really wanted to talk about that because I feel like people think of the word history and think it's really boring, Uh. Uh, and I thought that, I thought that too, but like history can can be really, really interesting, Um, and, you know, for me, being able to connect with these objects, I I talked about working on a project where I... um, collected these objects, actually, that my grandfather collected throughout his life. After he passed away, I um, sort of inherited them or just, you know, gravitated to the things that I found really interesting. And I had sort of, I sat with those objects for about two years, didn't really know what to do with them. Um, But I noticed that, you know, he was an accountant and um, those objects themselves sort of spoke to a little bit of my design aesthetic. And then also there was all this, like, familial history that was embedded in that. My entire family is from Cuba, and um, you know, my grandparents and parents on both sides are Cuban exiles. And so, there's a lot of documents in there that, you know, spoke to that, um, documents my grandfather sent over from Cuba. Uh, and I really wanted to, like, document that and put that up online as, as an archive for people to see. And But then I really also wanted to create new work from it. I didn't want to just I didn't wanna just photograph it and document it. I wanted to sort of play with it and see where I could take
0: it. Yeah, I I love the way that you worked in sort of a contemporary idea with all of these objects that have so much history and their own stories to them. And when I was reading more about the collection that you built, I was reading on your website and you were sort of describing the project as well as your mission and you were saying you were fascinated by traces of history that are embedded in every object that we use, collect and leave behind. And you said your practice is rooted in memory, heritage and material culture. And I think so many of us are fascinated to the about those aspects of objects, but you talk a lot about being, by wanting to push against sort of a nostalgia that happens when you look into the past, how do you sort of push against that or prevent sort of leaning on nostalgia too heavily when you're looking at things that have such a sort of rich family history to them?
1: Yeah, it's hard because I feel like a lot of the things that I encounter um, do have this like really nostalgic aesthetic, and part of me really, you know, uh, aesthetically I I like that as well, Um, but I get kind of bored by it pretty easily, so I, I wasn't satisfied just, like, creating a replica of my grandfather's um, calculator or, you know, creating a replica of his stapler's or his ID from Cuba. I wanted to figure out how I can use those things and play with it and make something really contemporary, because I, I mean, my own um, style at home <laughs> and as a designer is really, um, minimal and modern, but also really balanced. Where I do keep like certain objects out, but I keep you know I keep a pretty clean aesthetic. And I wanted to know like, you know, how can we how can we keep and remember these things that are important to us, but also have it fit into what our lives are now?
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I'm
1: not I'm not gonna I'm not really the person who's gonna have a bunch of old objects out in a shadow box. I mean, I love seeing it, but that's not, you know, what my home looks like. So how can I remember my grandfather or remember parts of my history and my, you know, my cultural history in a way that kind of fits in with, you know, my, who I am now and relates back to me now?
0: What did you do with all those objects after the gallery show?
1: Um, I have them all at home. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're very small objects. People ask me that all the time, but they're pretty, you know, they're pretty small. His typewriter was the largest thing um and i i am also like you know invested in history and archiving and so i do keep these things in like you know a, a container that's you know archive like um acid free and you know keep things in envelopes but they're mostly they sit in a box um and a couple of things are on display um but for the most part they're they're kept in a box to you know be preserved mm-hmm. for documentation
0: I love the way that you chose to sort of celebrate the history and the story of these objects by giving them like this very huge moment in the sun. I think so many times in the creative community, in particular, the idea of collecting and sort of really celebrating objects, it it ends up you know, they end up in a shadow box so they end up on the wall in this sort of art display, which is, which is great. But I think that you really sort of brought these objects to life and gave them this sort of respectful moment in a way that like a shadow box can't do, where you really sort of put them out there and allowed them to be the jumping off point for a conversation. Um, And I was curious to see how did people react to this? Did you see people sort of doing similar things or did you hear from anyone who sort of was inspired to dig back through any of their sort of family collections of objects?
1: yeah that that's been the coolest thing about the project was was hearing people you know people emailed me or came up to me after a show and would talk to me about you know wanting to dig through their family's you know garage or their attic and go through these things or talk to me about like oh yeah, my grandfather collected these matchbooks and I never really looked into them um and so that's you know that's really exciting to to think about um to to see people sort of engage with those objects um and you know um For me, it's a little bit personal, too, where my grandparents and parents weren't allowed to keep um, a lot of their personal effects when they left Cuba. That was sort of part of the deal. (laughs) Um, So this idea of my grandfather sending these objects and whatever these significant, um, you know, keepsakes were to him is really meaningful to sort of see, like, what they are. But then at the end of the day, you know, he kept his, um, you know, cuban exile identification card along with like these spurs from mcdonald's you know they were leveled out at the end of the day which is really interesting
0: <laughs> I, li- I like a mix of high and low it's good um yeah <laughs> before we take a break i want to ask you a question that when i was sort of getting ready for this interview today i was talking with my wife julia and she is we were talking about sort of the way history plays a big part in your work and she was asking Um, I thought was an interesting question about how do you make sure that you continue to move forward when some of your work is about looking backward? And sort of how do you make sure that the ideas you're putting out there are sort of always kind of moving towards the future and going forward?
1: Um, I think, you know, the idea... For me, it's really important to think about, like, elevating the object or the material instead of just, like, replicating it. And part of that is just, you know... Like I kind of find it really boring to just replicate something that half of the, you know, most of the time these things are beautiful objects on their own. I don't need to um, I don't need to replicate it in any way, but it's this really awesome jumping-off point, and it creates this really for me it creates a much deeper meaningful connection. So I I just can't I can't really be satisfied with just replicating the old. I'm always sort of interested in like pushing
0: and making something new from it. That's exciting. I have a lot of questions to ask you about that, but we have to take a very quick break. Uh, Stay tuned. I'll be right back with Veronica Corzo Ducart. program was
1: brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, Perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com.
0: Hey, welcome back to After the Jump. I need to pause a minute. I'm still drooling about the ham commercial that just played before this. <laughs> As a southerner, it's it's hard to resist. Um, I'm talking to Veronica Corzo-Ducart today about history, family, and culture and how all of these things relate to artwork. Um, And before the break, we were talking about a speech that Veronica gave at the Weapons of Mass Creation, but I want to talk a little bit about more about sort of the personal work you do. I find it so interesting how much all of your work really plays with the idea of storytelling. And when I was thinking about that, I wondered, when you start any project, Veronica, whether it's personal or for a client, do you have sort of an end of the story in mind for the goal or do you kind of find these things evolve as you start working on them?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think I ever have an end in mind. Um, I'm really interested in the process and in the story and you know, I know storytelling is such, a, like, a buzzword right now, so I can <laughs> stay away from, from saying that. But, um, no, I mean, I, at the end of the day, I do really need a story to hang on to, and whether that's, like, you know, in, at my design studio, I end up doing work with, like, you know, wine labels and cultural institutions and books. And for me, I I always need to find that story that, you know, that I'm interested in and want to draw out and really explore. I don't ever really have a, you know... An end in mind. It's more about exploring the the material or exploring the particular history of a place, um, and so sort of like drawing on those things, and it, you know, just getting to play with those.
0: Yeah how does How does the process work for sort of a, a personal project that you do versus something you're doing for a brand or a client? Uh, I love the way that you kind of infuse so much of your personal history into your work. Do you encourage clients to do that as well or do you find that something that works best for a personal projects
1: um, i I think I do tend well I think now I, not, not at the beginning of working, but I think now I do tend to um, Get clients that are more interested, or find me through my personal work. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, I'm more and more, I'm doing personal work as my main work uh, versus client work. But I think people do come to me for this idea of like telling a story, or people who are interested in a little bit more of a deeper meaning Mm -hmm. uh, or deeper connection to things
0: one of the things I wanted to ask you about today is when we were talking before recording and we were emailing about sort of things that were on the top of your mind right now and I loved the suggestion you gave which was to talk about the ways that sort of the academic community could possibly interact more with sort of the arts community because your partner Beth um, is an adjunct professor of media and cultural studies at DePaul and I know you guys sort of talk a lot a bit about how your work intersects, could you tell me a little bit about about some projects that you think have gone well, where sort of the academic world has partnered up with the artistic world and to tell sort of a story together?
1: You know, I have to say that I I can't think of a lot of I can't think <laughs> of a lot of projects like this, which is really sad to me. Um, you know, in in our house, we constantly get into debates about. You know, visual culture and um, and art and stuff like that. And at a certain point, we like have to meet each other halfway because I want to know enough where I can run with something and really like create from it. And she wants to know all of the background and like the related sources and all of that <laughs> stuff, right? <laughs> um, but then it's got, it's great because we sort of we, you know we push each other, and I think that's fantastic. And I, I wish there was more of that. I mean, I think that. You know, Design Observer does a really good job of, like, highlighting um, highlighting topics within, you know, visual culture and academia and also the design community. I think, like, Jessica Helfand is a, is a designer who I, you know, really admire and um, is also, like, I mean, she's an artist and designer but also an academic. She did the, that awesome book on scrapbooks and really engaged with things. Um, And then I think, you know, there are a couple of places that are starting to do things. There's this um, CFA media mixer here in Chicago, which is the Chicago Film Archive, invites um, artists to create short films from their film archives, which I think is really cool.
0: Oh, that's great. I, I think things would go a lot better if I, I really wish that like these communities would reach out to each other more um, just from the very basic place of resources, because I did a project a couple years ago with the New York Public Library where they were looking to sort of promote and get the word out about their like incredible archive collection because they have everything from like textile books to pattern books and all these things that are so helpful for designers, but people weren't coming in to really make use of them. so they created this video series to have designers come in and create entire collections inspired by whatever they found in the library archives. And I was so blown away by how all of the people who were artists had never spoken with any of the librarians there. They didn't know a lot of the history behind objects. And it was this like explosion of inspiration. And it doesn't happen enough. I feel like I'm not really quite sure how to get that going. Do you have any ideas of how you think that could happen? I mean, I remember that project and I know that the
1: New York Public Library does that and I, I was just like blown away by it and honestly, you know, I would just love to get the keys to an archive or <laughs> library and just like, you know, make stuff from their collections. Um, and I feel that I've been really lucky with, you know, my grad school and then, you know, my wife just finished her PhD so it's been, you know, eight years that I've been embedded in this community. Um, and so I know a lot about archives and libraries and all of these resources, but there's so many designers and artists who don't and there's it's like we both they both need each other um mm-hmm. and they're both sort of talking about the same thing, but nobody's not that nobody is connecting, but a lot of people aren't really connecting these things um, and i I don't really know how to start the dialogue. I think that there are you know some really smart people in digital humanities and um you know, and design criticism like SVA is doing a lot of stuff to facilitate talks, but mm-hmm. then they end up just being these academic talks, which I've been to, and you know they're reading from papers, which is fine, <laughs> but you know they're not um, they're not engaging in the way in a in a way where it's easy for sort of designers or artists to digest. And then the same thing sort of happens on the opposite end where. When my wife goes to a conference sometimes she's sort of looking for the you know where's the substance where's the sort of like source material people are just throwing out stuff here so i don't know i i you know i would love to have you know like a artist and um scholar mentorship program or something i don't know (laughs) that
0: could help i think that's actually a great idea I think that's yeah. exciting. I was thinking a lot about the reason that your talk kind of struck me so much at the um, in Cleveland this year was because you really delved so much into the process and the research behind it. And I find that I used to attend that Creative Mornings series that happens yeah. across the country now. Um, and I think the reason I used to love that so much and, and still do is that they really focus so much on getting to sort of the underpinnings of a project because so often in the art community, you just see the final thing. You see a beautiful gallery show. You see a print. You see a product, whatever it is, but you rarely see the research that went into that. And I think right. so much of what's important for people understanding what goes into the final project is understanding the process and where did that information come from. And that's why I think I mean, sp- libraries in particular hold like such a wealth of, of information. But I think academics that sort of do specialized in information, I would love to see them combine with artists who sort of work in that field, but they just don't know the two of them have the missing pieces to make something really special happen.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, thinking about about projects that have happened lately, like I, I think of, like, Kelly Anderson's uh, project with Russ and Daughters, mm-hmm. and, you know, she delved into the archives of that store and some of that, like, you know, some of those objects and things like that to create something new, and she did, she did use it as a platform. You know, she did really, like, go beyond just what the history was.
0: Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about um, podcasting because you have a blog called Podcast (coughs) Thing uh, where you talk about sort of interesting podcasts and what you enjoy about them. So since this is a podcast, I would love to hear more about that blog. So, What inspired you to start a blog about podcasts?
1: Well, uh, my friend uh, Max Temkin had um, just, it was really one of these random Internet moments where he put out a tweet and was like, hey, does anybody want to work on podcasts? creating a site for podcasts, or, you know, is anybody really interested in this kind of stuff? And I said, oh, yeah, like, I'm interested in that. And he's like, awesome, let's work on this together. And it kind of came about within a week. Uh, we put up this site, and we put up some, you know, podcast recommendations that we had. And we, you know, we didn't want it just to be, like, our voice and podcasts we like. Um, so we started just interviewing people about the podcast that they listen to. Just because, I mean, we, we found it frustrating that it's really hard to... Uh, navigate the you know Apple iStore to try to find <laughs> new and interesting podcast. So it, it becomes a lot more interesting when you think about it. You know, from the perspective of a person, like oh, what does Grace Bonney listen to? What does you know? so uh, someone so listen to. That becomes a little bit more interesting.
0: Grace Bonney watches a lot of television. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll start television. Thing, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, I love, and I do listen to a lot of podcasts, but uh, I love, I love the idea of people in the visual community really calling out great podcasts because there does seem to be this sort of divide between the visual community and things that happen in a primarily audio format. How do you yeah. think that we can make Podcasts more interesting or more accessible to people who are primarily working in the visual community
1: huh, that's really interesting because I feel like a um, lot a lot of, a lot of uh, podcasts that i 've seen you know, are either interview based I think ones that are doing it um, really well to sort of like, engage the creative community are obviously like ninety nine percent invisible. Um, And I know Design Observer just started um, a new podcast, but for me it's really about um, discovering some new ideas, and which is why I like 99% Invisible, um, and using that as something to sort of like go and making work from. So I don't think anybody really watches a lot of video podcasts, I'm gonna say that. (laughs) Because I think that part of what's great about podcasts is like you can just like you know throw on your headphones, you can be riding the train, and you can be listening to this really engaging conversation um so i mean i would I would love to see more people engaging again like both um scholars and artists like in conversation with each other um that would be that would be really interesting. One of my favorite podcasts like uh backstory uh What I like about that is that it's a bunch of, like, academic dudes. But what I like about it is they take this, like, moment in history that's relevant right now, and they explore what it meant throughout the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. Um, And so that's really cool. And I also love, you know, Unherited Radio, Taste of the Past, just sort Mm -hmm. of, yeah, like, the history of pizza I'm interested in
0: that, you know. We're all interested in pizza, Veronica. It's a very good topic. (laughs) So we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you uh, nine very quick questions before we close out. So since we're talking about podcasting, let's start there. If you could give anyone a podcast, what would it be or who would it be and what would you want to hear them talk about?
1: If I oh I could give them a podcast mm-hmm. too oh oh I think I might call out Rena um, I think <laughs> Rena <laughs> Rena Tom um, I don't know yeah I think I would have her talk about um, the creative community uh, and also I think that she's tapped into both worlds of academic scholarship and of creative makers so I think that that would be a really interesting um, place to start with that
0: good answer. Um, who is someone that you look up to when times are tough?
1: Huh. Um, that's really interesting. I uh, am, <laughs> of course, uh, blanking uh, on no a person's name. But uh, I do really admire Jessica Halston's career, yeah. and so I really think about her as both like a, a maker and a scholar. Um, so she's somebody I really admire.
0: What's your favorite guilty pleasure activity or pastime?
1: Oh, God. Um, I i mean, I do watch TV. Sometimes I watch, like, really trashy TV. Please like, tell me you tr- watch Real Housewives. <laughs> <laughs> like, perhaps The Vampire Diaries. I'm oh, that's a good one. That.
0: That's good. I'm, I'm <laughs> impressed by that answer. Um, who is or what is a brand or designer whose work that you can't get enough of, that you just love? Um,
1: right now, I'm really excited by... Um, I, think I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but uh, Kiriko brand. They're making these amazing Japanese scarves
0: <gasps> out of Portland. Kiriko, yeah, they're fantastic.
1: Yeah, they're really great, and I, I think they're such a good example of somebody who's, like, um, using the history, but then making, like, this really contemporary pieces.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I, I just really love their, I love their work, and I love their scarves and everything.
0: They're very cool. They're
1: good people, too.
0: Um, mm-hmm. If you could travel anywhere right now, where would you go?
1: Uh, I would go to the Basque region, Spain. Oh, wow. I'm dying to go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, Beth and I have been postponing our honeymoon for eight years now. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> any moment now. <laughs> any moment now. I would love to eat and drink my way through that region. <laughs> That's
0: great. Uh, so from the Basque region back home, what are your perfect 24 hours in Chicago? What would you do?
1: Oh, um, this is hard because I, I often find this problem. and usually involves eating. Um, so, so I, I think purge, purging breaks have to come in between. Um, but I love going to eat at, you know, Choco, which is one of Rick Bayless's street food places. Um, there's this awesome Middle Eastern bakery in Andersonville that's fantastic. Um, you know, I had this amazing woman's spa that was, like, Japanese-inspired and really cheap, and they closed down recently, and that was, like, one of our perfect Chicago days, but um, I would say going to the Art Institute, obviously, you know, great collection, Um, and probably eating some more, like, tenoshi sushi at the end of the night.
0: Good day. All right. Last three. Uh, I know you collect and, and own a lot of very important family history objects and I'm sure that there are some that kind of come in rotation of being on desktops or being out more than others, but what's your current favorite object that you have at home that's a family piece? Uh,
1: my grandfather's calculator. Uh, I kept that out, since, I think, since I first got those objects. And it's still out, and it has batteries, and I use it all the time <laughs> um and there's a there's a tatly of it, which is really fun um but yeah, it's just this amazing orange um calculator that he used um and it's always on my desk, and I, you know I use it almost daily.
0: That's great, well, let's get right to the last one. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received?
1: okay uh best piece of advice. this is gonna sound really strange, but I think. <laughs> The best piece of advice that has stuck with me since I was 17 years old was my driving instructor um, who told me that if you look at the divider, you're going to run into the divider. (laughs) And for some reason, this has always stuck with me of this idea of like, you know, if you – whatever you're looking towards is what you're going to go towards. So, you know, if you're you're not happy with, like, where your direction is going, like you need to recalibrate and start looking towards something else, because eventually you're going to naturally just start gravitating to this thing. Um, And so it's like this really random piece of advice um, that has sort of stuck with me throughout my life.
0: I think it's... Such, I can't imagine a better note to end on. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, thank you for all your work. I think you are uh, my history version of The Divider, and I think that you've, you really inspire me to sort of pay more attention to the way that culture and history and your family really play into the things you keep around you. And as someone who already loves objects, you've made me look at them in a completely different way all over again, which is no small feat. So thank you for being such an inspiring person.
1: Wow, thank you so much. Um, um, so amazing to be on one of my like my favorite podcasts so,
0: really <laughs> thanks, excited veronica. and thank you for being here before we leave tell everybody where they can find you online
1: yeah you can find me at winterburo.com um and you can find me on twitter
0: at winterburo awesome thanks so much for being here veronica thanks so much for having me Grace. thanks to all of you for listening and i'll see you next wednesday